Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, this is JF. Time for another song swap, where Phil and I select songs containing a soupçon of the weird and record an episode on them. We've done this a few times over the years, and it's always been a lot of fun. For this episode, Phil chose Judy Sill's The Kiss from her 1973 album Heart Food, and I went with Jesus Etc. from Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, released in 2001. But to be honest, my plan was to use the song as a synecdoche for the record as a whole. It's on the subject of time that we found resonance between these otherwise very different tracks. That makes some sense, because all music does strange things to time, don't you think? I was hard at work preparing this intro when our assistant Meredith posted something on our private server that perfectly encapsulated what I was trying to say about music and its strange relationship to temporality. So, instead of rambling as I usually do, I'm going to read what she wrote. In her post, Meredith is talking about the science fiction novel Last and First Men, the screen adaptation of which was the focus of episode 142. When she mentions the third men, she's referring to the third in a litany of future civilizations described in the novel. Quote, I'm finally getting around to reading Last and First Men, and there's a part that was very reminiscent of Phil's description of parachronic time. It's an episode from The Third Men, where a religion of music is developed and then becomes a kind of crazy, tyrannical state religion. It starts with the observation, quote, It seemed to them that when men and women listened to great music, the barriers of their individuality were broken down, so that they became one soul through communion with the music, unquote. Then a prophet emerges who says about melody, quote, Passage is essential to its being. Yet though for a melody, to halt is to die a violent death, all music, the prophet affirmed, also has eternal life. After silence it may occur again, with all its freshness and aliveness. Time cannot age it, for its home is in a country outside of time. End quote. Thanks, Meredith. You made it easy. And while I'm on a grateful note, thanks also to all you listeners who support us on Patreon. You may not make it easy, but you do make it possible. If you enjoy the podcast but aren't yet a patron, please consider becoming one by going to patreon.com forward slash weird studies and choosing one of our four tiers of support. Top tier patrons enjoy exclusive essays and blog posts, bonus episodes every off week, and monthly Zoom calls with Phil and me. All right, song swap on Judy Sill's The Kiss and Wilco's Jesus Etc. Let's get to it. So there's a book that I mentioned in one of the last shows. I can't remember if it was the Twin Peaks one or the one before, but I, I mentioned James Elkin's Pictures and Tears, that book about the weird phenomenon of crying at art. Elkin's an art historian is talking particularly about visual art. 
so I want to read from his book, which is a marvelous book, and I think you can find a free PDF of it on his personal website, so I would recommend checking it out. So he canvassed the opinion of fellow professionals in the art history biz and just put out an open call, like, if you've cried at art, tell me about that. How did it go? What was that about? And so on. And he tells a story. It's almost like the pivotal anecdote that he tells in this book about a short story writer named Robin Parks. And she wrote to him saying, among other things, I cried at the Louvre in front of victory, meaning the winged victory of Samothrace. I cried at the Louvre in front of victory. She had no arms, but she was so tall. And Elkins responds, it was a simple letter and decidedly odd. I asked her what she meant by saying winged victory had no arms, but was so tall. I said I could see her crying over someone who has no arms, even in sympathy with an ancient sculpture, but I couldn't quite figure out the other phrase, but she was so tall. Why not and she was so tall? Robin wasn't sure. I hope she never figures it out, because the letter is perfect, just as it is. What could be more wonderful, more impenetrable, than her nonsensical explanation? She had no arms, but she was so tall. Robin tells me her ambition is to make something beautiful and as close to perfect as humanly possible, even if it's just one small thing, one small perfect thing. In that line about victory, I think she might have done it. End quote. And I'm saying this, I'm bringing this up for two reasons. First of all, the song that I want to talk about today, Judy Sills, The Kiss, is a song that reliably turns on the waterworks for me. I cry at this song all the time. And if you ask me why, what is it about it? I could probably come up with a more articulate reason for it. I might invent some stuff about the opening chord sequence. As you can see, I am sitting at the piano today. But in truth, it is pretty damn mysterious. And I doubt I could come up with a phrase of such jeweled perfection as the one that Robin Parks came up for her experience of the winged victory. The other thing I want to say about this is that for me, Judy Sill's song is the perfect, beautiful thing. The one simple, perfect, beautiful thing. It's a perfect song. I don't ordinarily place much store by perfection. Twin Peaks Season 3, for example, which we just got done talking about, is a great work of art, but I would hardly call it a perfect one. It's messy and shaggy, and there's lots of bits that stick out, and that's part of its charm. But this song, I don't know, is perfection kind of the wrong thing to be talking about? Maybe. But there's just something about this song that just feels like an arrow loosed from a magical bow that is firing unerringly into at least my heart, maybe your heart as well. Anyway, that's my opening gambit. Not much of a gambit, but it's what I got. It's obviously a, a very, very beautiful song, and there's so much going on in that song, musically and lyrically. And also, having read up on Judy Sill, whom I didn't know about until you uh, you shared the song with me, although I was, I didn't know Jesus was a crossmaker, and I love that song. It's that's a great a version song. of that song by, I can't remember who the artist is that covered it. And that's how I got to know it. But anyways, so as I understand it, she's become an artist's artist or a songwriter's songwriter, right? She's really respected Judy Sill 
by other songwriters. There's a wonderful version of The Kiss that Bonnie Prince Billy, whom I very much, very much like, uh, recorded. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really nice. Uh, he does change it, though. And ultimately, I don't think it quite reaches the heights that the original reached. I mean, on listening to it after reading up on her, obviously, I started to see the biographical depths of the song. And, you know, she was a woman who lived a very difficult life mm. that ended prematurely, tragically, drug overdose. So my impression of the song right now is kind of steeped in that. But even before that, when I first listened to it cold, I could feel it's a song about the numinous. You know, it's a song about encountering the numinous from the depths of despair when she, like our poor bodies lying prone. You know, she refers to this existence on this side of the kiss is quite dark. And then something coming in from the outside references to an angelic host. Mm -hmm. And there's more to say about that. But yeah, I think it's a beautiful song. So is it perfect? Well, perfection is a complicated word. You know, in in philosophy, it can mean many different things. Insofar as it means that nothing needs to be changed, then I would obviously agree that this is a perfect song. It is a perfect moment. And since, you know, Judy Sill isn't that well known on a massive kind of pop culture level. No. For me, I think that song is pretty much synonymous in my mind with that particular performance of the song, which is available on YouTube which you can find in the show notes. So I'm talking about the song, but I'm also talking about that performance of the song. Yeah. Uh, that moment of performance, that event. I'm unable, as I would, like, let's say we were talking about Bob Dylan's, like, a Rolling Stone. I can talk about that song in the abstract. I can't with this. With this song, it seems like it's one with its performance. And certainly the performance is perfect, despite any particular technical flaws one might be able to find in it. So yes, I agree, it's a perfect song. I mean, I like what you said. Nothing can be added to it. I feel that way actually exactly about that performance that you can find on YouTube. It's not the same as the studio performance where she double tracks her voice and where the arrangement has a number of instruments that come in gradually over the course of the song, sort of thickening the texture and adding counterpoints, which is very beautiful and very much in her style. But that performance you can see on YouTube of her singing the song solo at the keyboard is so beautiful. It reminds me actually of, I mean, the song reminds me a little bit of Brian Wilson's song Surf's Up, which he recorded mm-hmm. with the, Beast, the, the Beastie Boys, with the Beach Boys. And that would have been which good. Dis, despite, yeah, I know, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, despite the title Surf's Up has nothing to do with the sort of surf and safari Beach Boys stuff. It's a deeply introspective and spiritual song much like The Kiss. And there's a recording that appeared on, I think it was a CBS special called Inside Pop, hosted by Leonard Bernstein, a very serious Leonard Bernstein. Surf's up. Mm-hmm. 
Surf's Up is one aspect of new things happening in pop music today. As such, it is a symbol of the change many of these young musicians see in our future. And this solo performance of Surf's Up that Brian Wilson did is still kind of my favorite performance of the piece, even though it's a song that really needs the swooping multi-track harmonies that you hear on at least some of the recordings of it. But something about it boiled down, it's like an oil painting boiled down to a sketch, right. to a few strokes on a piece of white paper. That's actually uh, an expression you use talking about Twin Peaks uh, season three, that aspect of late style, that feeling of compression, of reduction to the essence. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily late style when we're talking about somebody like Judy Sill, who died in her mid-30s. But nevertheless, that feeling of... I don't know, emotional honesty or at least emotional nakedness that comes from such a, a reduced, boiled down performance. Let's stay there for a sec, because I, I, this is something I wanted to say last time, but the opportunity never arose. Uh, late style, I mean, if I were to get esoteric about it, I would say that you can have late style even in an artist who dies young. It's almost like, you know, if Jung is right that the work of art is a kind of organism that uses the artist to manifest itself. Late style is simply relative to the particular lifespan of the artist. You can look at Rimbaud's last poems as a late style, and I think that they do manifest certain qualities of that. It's almost like the artist knows that they're at the end of an arc, you know, of a, a particular process. And so the maturity of the song, the confidence in it, and and yet, like every note matters. There's, it has all the qualities of a late style work to me. And it was essentially late style just because she died so young. So yeah. some artists are born late. You know? That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Because like, it has that quality of a few strokes of, of ink on a piece of paper. I haven't listened to the studio version. I've only listened to the live version. So I can't really compare. But, you know, what strikes me when I listen to that song is the incredibly sophisticated songwriting you know it's a song that knows how songs work and it's like a very very well-made object and you'll have all kinds of reasons for that i'm sure like technical and musicological kind of explanations for that but to me it just sounds like that's why she's one of those songwriters who are appreciated most by fellow songwriters yeah that sort of musician's musician thing the reason why certain artists uh, attain to that is because in their songwriting, they're teaching other practitioners of the art what a song can do. You know, maybe it's less accessible on a popular level for most people. It's kind of like uh, a fine wine that you need to be a wine aficionado to appreciate. Otherwise, you might think it's vinegar. <laughs> but to someone who knows <laughs> what what wine is, this is the shit. You know, and I, I get that sense. Yeah listening to to her to her work that essentially she came in late and uh, left too early someone like sill who i only discovered recently and i discovered actually because somebody put this song this 
particular recording on YouTube up in the music section of the fan discord. It just poleaxed me when I listened to it. But like my first thought when I encounter it is like, oh my God, what has she done? And it's two albums. She recorded two albums. The recording industry, my impression is that they were kind of hoping they had another Joni Mitchell on their hands. And Syl is just too quirky, too individual, too unusual. She doesn't quite fit into existing types, not to suggest that Joni Mitchell is some kind of normie. But um, mm -hmm. my point is that Judy Sill just didn't quite fit into the available categories. It's kind of folk music, sort of, but she listened to a lot of Bach and there's a lot of Bach that comes out in her stuff. There's like a, a song called the Archetypal Man from her eponymous album, her first album, which has like pedal lap steel and it sounds not too distinct from the sound world of the other song we're going to talk about today jesus etc by wilco and then veers suddenly unexpectedly into a section of bachian vocalese like a pretty good imitation of bach's style of melodic writing that just sort of appears out of nowhere she enjoys hopping from one genre and one stylistic connotation to another. A lot of the themes of her songs are kind of occult. You know, she wrote spiritual songs and she actually expressly said about The Kiss that she didn't know whether it was a song about like a kiss between lovers or the union between the individual human being and the divine. Yeah. And so, you know, this kind of just very singular artistic vision means she recorded two albums. She also was, I think, a somewhat prickly individual, although I don't know that much about her life. There's a documentary that has been released, but it isn't streaming yet, so I haven't had a chance to see it, but I'm looking forward to being able to when that's available. My point here is that biographical, musical, all of these different factors kind of made her difficult to fit into 70s Los Angeles music culture. And she flamed out, died in poverty and addiction, and almost completely unknown. There is a particular kind of heartbreak when you have an artist who is so richly endowed with gifts, so brilliant, so full of potential, and all you get is this little bit. You know, Jeff Buckley, son of Tim Buckley, yeah, created one awe-inspiring rock album, and then he died pointlessly, tragically, in his 20s by wading into the Mississippi River. I remember I had a dream about Jeff Buckley where it turned out he didn't die after all, and I remember feeling just fucking crushed when I woke up and realized, nope, still dead. And it's a feeling I have about Judy Sill, like you have this little fragment. It's almost like what you say about Heraclitus, though. Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe the fragmentary utterance is what we have of a certain artist. That's like part of the expression. Well, that's the thing. What if the art knew about her fate and adapted itself to that, such that it's only because everything happened as it did that the work existed as it did at all? Like some people leave fragments, and yet there is a perfection to fragmentariness, as we talked about in the Heraclitus episode all the way back, that, I mean, of course... Uh, is not achievable otherwise. So maybe afterwards, once everything has passed, and at this point we look back, Judy still lived and died, wrote these songs, it all kind of fits together in retrospect. You know, it kind of, yeah. there's something right about it, as tragic as the ending was. 
one of the things, I mean, when you listen to some of Kurt Cobain's songs in light of his ultimate fate, it adds something to the music. And in fact, we're going to see in the Jesus, etc. section, once we're, we've moved to that song, how sometimes a work of art remains absolutely mysterious and enigmatic until something happens. And then suddenly you realize why it existed all along. You know, Nietzsche said, some of us are born posthumously. Well, that's true for artworks. Some artworks are simply indecipherable until certain events have transpired, and then suddenly their sense becomes evident, which is not to say that they become exhaustible in terms of interpretation. They simply become enigmatic in the way that works of art should be enigmatic. They find their place. They find their place in the mysterious kind of like neosphere of our thinking about art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's impossible to listen to this song without the tragedy surrounding it. It's just part of the song now and part of yeah. what we're appreciating. Yeah. Yeah. Part of its perfection, perhaps, just not only that it's such a crystalline expression of its fundamental emotion of longing and a brief, authentic encounter with uh, the other, you know, the beloved. There's almost the sense of like, this is, um, it's your turn to step up to the mic on the stage of your life, say something and you say something. And that thing is the utterance that comes from that moment, from that life, from that situation, from both the past and even the, the future that Judy Thill couldn't have possibly known about, but the utterance that finds the mark within that chirotic moment, that moment of Kairos, that moment in which it is given to you to say something, in which God passes you the mic. So you said about uh, just a moment ago, well, let's, I, you know, we don't have to stick with one song doggedly. We can flip back and forth. So you were talking about the song Jesus, Etc." by Wilco from Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And you were saying, using that as an example of an artwork that is not really fully legible. It doesn't quite deliver its payload until certain a certain event or a certain condition has to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. Why don't you explain what you mean by that? What's up with that? Before I go to that, I just want to point out, as you were talking, my eyes landed on this line from Judy Sill's song. Once a crystal choir appeared while I was sleeping and called my name. And when they came down nearer saying dying is done, then a new song was sung until somewhere we breathed as one. And uh, it just struck me as very similar to a line from a song from Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is the album that Jesus Etc. appears on, the Wilco album, where he says, All my lies are only wishes. I know I would die if I could come back new. And so this idea of death and rebirth is one thing that ties the two projects we're discussing today together. And again, death and rebirth, the idea of coming to terms with one's mortality, which is always a future event, 
but experiencing one's mortality as something in the present, dying in the present so as to be reborn. That's just, I don't know, thinking about that in light of this song uh, makes so much sense, especially considering how Judy Sill's life played out. Coming to terms with death, I think this is a big part of the song that you chose, and I think it's also a big part of the song that I'll be discussing. And it so happens to tie back to what we were just discussing in the Twin Peaks show. And also in the uh, the previous show on the, uh, the Rilke poem, a kind mm-hmm. of like art as a means of accessing an atemporality, or at least a radically different temporality where the future, as unforeseen and unforeseeable as it may be, plays into the present along with the past. And oh, then yeah. the song kind of speaks from this other level, almost as though it came from whatever world that crystal choir that she encounters comes from, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that in as a kind of, just to tie the two things together. Well, that's crazy you said that about temporality, because that was actually one of the big things I wanted to talk about. So as has often been the case, we find ourselves on the same page. You You know my concept of parachronic time? Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about this in the what's supposed to be, I think, the seventh chapter of the book that we're working on together, Weirding, which is on practice. So one of the things I'm doing in that chapter is talking about the Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street, and the peculiar, very hard to put into words, notion of reality that it was playing with. And my argument is that the idea of reality of society of a redemptive society, of the anarchist dream of the nonviolent revolution. You know, I, I spent a certain amount of time thinking about how Occupy did not precipitate that in the ordinary sense, didn't precipitate the revolution in the usual sense. They were practicing revolution. Easy to misunderstand that and think that I'm saying they're practicing for revolution, like this is a dry run for some successful revolutionary act to be executed in the future. But that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the time of practice, whether it's a practice of playing music or a practice of the nonviolent revolution or what have you, is something that happens in its own time, in a time that is real, but it's also kind of cut off from us. And this is an idea I call parachronic time. It's sort of an other time, the time in which things happen. And yet, um, I don't know, it's actually hard to put into words. So I'm going to read a little bit from the draft of what I'm writing. Magical thought always appears at moments of historical intensity, when new ways of being and new possibilities of selfhood are being explored though always deniably, and in a way that ends up finally being lost to public memory and overwritten in academic accounts. The experiences and insights that emerge from magical thought and practice are like summer tomatoes, too perishable for their flavor to last much past the day you buy them. More durable are those textual objects that can establish rational ideas of selfhood. History begins in a certain collective experience, which becomes a past but is not yet history until manifestos, philosophies, constitutions, and laws come back into the picture and eventually usurp the experience from which they are born. The memories of the experience die with those who were there. In fact, 
Maybe even their memories will change to fit the emerging historical narrative, and it may happen that there will be in the end nothing left of their past, because the past itself will have changed in its becoming history. The past would then be like John Crowley's Egypt. Not Egypt with an E, an actual place on the map, but Egypt with an A-E, a place that lives in a kind of temporal state of exception. Quote, Every now and then the observable universe passes through a sort of turnstile or baffle and comes out different on the other side, different not only in its physical extensions and the laws that govern them, but different in its past and future too. Once the world was all like this, then it changed. Now it's like this, and always has been. And that's a quote from John Crowley's Love and Sleep, mm -hmm. which is part of his Egypt churchology. I use this to explain the peculiar mood of William Gibson's forward to Dahlgren, which we've talked about on the show multiple times, and so I'm not going to read from that. But where I end up in this passage is actually quoting Dogen, and I'm just going to uh, continue with this. Our experience of time is what L.E.J. Brower calls attuity. Each moment of our lives splits in two, the elusive present moment itself in its instant appearance and memory. The present moment that passes into the remembered past is not entirely assimilated to it. The moment itself doesn't disappear, and neither do the things that happen within it. To be sure, the present moment that passes is cut off from us, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It remains in its own hoi, or dharma position. Uh, Tanahashi translates the word as phenomenal expression. Dogen writes that firewood becomes ash and it does not become firewood again. Yet do not suppose that ash is future and firewood past. You should understand that firewood abides in the phenomenal expression, or dharma position, or hoi, of firewood, which fully includes past and future and is independent of past and future, end quote. And that's a quote from Genja Cohen, which we've talked about on the show. Mm -hmm. And I continue, parachronic time is the name I give to the events that happen in their own hoi and cannot be subsumed by or reduced to their persistence in linear time. And where I pick up on this is actually in David Bowie's song, Heroes, I, I will be king and you, you will be queen. Though nothing will drive them away, we can beat them just for one day. We can be heroes just for one day. Anyway, I hope this is giving you a sort of a sense of what I'm talking about. This hooks up with Zen practice because, you know, sometimes it happens in your meditation practice. You have a moment of spiritual opening, an awakening, uh, a satori or kensho. There's a million and one names for it then what happens is that it's over quickly. And try as you might, you can't make that moment happen. It's a mystery why that moment happened. Perhaps we might use the Christian idea of grace to understand it, but it was a moment of extraordinary singular intensity and beauty, a moment where I and thou is overcome and it's just one. It's a moment in which, as Judy Sill puts it, you know, a new song is sung and somewhere we breathed as one. And it can really crush you to have that experience and then have it leave you. Philip K. Dick writes in Vallis about committing suicide. I mean, it's his fictional doppelganger, horse lover fat, but still you get the feeling this is also something that happened to Dick. The feeling of unappeasable grief when having been visited by God, God then just ups and leaves like a deadbeat dad who 
gets up to buy a pack of smokes and never comes back. Dick writes somewhere mordantly that uh, if there should be a rule that if you find God, you should get to keep him. But that doesn't appear to be in the charter. That doesn't appear to be in the rule book. And that feeling of yearning for that vanished moment, so close you can almost taste it, and yet it's gone. That is, there's a poetry to that. And it's a poetry of knowing that that moment in some sense still exists yeah. in its own position, in its own hoy. It exists in parachronic time. You know, we can be heroes just for one day. You can be an enlightened being, but the, the catch is that you can be an enlightened being only in the moment of its emergence. Yeah. And then you spend the rest of your life telling stories about that one time, right? And right. to me, this song is about those moments where it actually happens, where you actually have that convergence, and then it's gone, but it's not gone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. In the Macbeth course I did, we talked a lot about this element of time, attuity as you call it, time splitting into past and future or into material and imaginal at any one time. Whenever something happens, it is already past, even in its moment of happening. Bergson said that deja vu, the experience of deja vu, was simply the experience of becoming conscious of the pastness of the present. So when you have deja vu, you're seeing that the present is always already the past as well. But for Bergson, the past is always conserved fully conserved and pushed into time, such that the moment of the past that you think you've lost in one temporality is actually fully present in another temporality. That's what Marcel Proust is on about in In Search of Lost Time. He's the Madeleine, the famous Madeleine scene where he tastes these, this pastry and suddenly gets transported back in time. What he's saying is that the past was always fully present, such that if you access this other temporality, you call it parachronic, Nietzsche calls it the untimely, I was calling it originary time in that particular context, the Macbeth course. You're accessing the eternal that subsists in time, and it's simply impervious yeah. to the degeneration of a purely chronological process in which things appear one after another. It's the same, it's the same yeah. as when you can, you, you can watch Twin Peaks The Return, and in the experience of watching, scenes come and go. One scene follows another. But then, you know, once the tape is rewound or whatever it is, or once it's you're not watching anymore, all of it is still present there as a potentiality. The work of art always springs back into the eternal, manifests in time, springs back into the eternal whence it came. Which is why Rilke can speak of the, this archaic torso of Apollo as still containing and delivering its original fullness, even though yeah. it's a fragment, yeah. as insofar as anything exists, even if nothing but a small, tiny little dust particle of the statue were left. And even then, even if even that had been destroyed, the imaginal event of the work of art would remain fully present in that other temporality. This is something really mystical, but there are ways of accessing that thought, which like Bergson does, for instance, which don't have to do with getting all poetic and weird. It's simply the case that every present moment is also the past. It's also the case that the past somehow is present here in the future. And memory is a retrieving of that which is 
present still, but in this imaginal way, not in this physical material way. I mean, even the last split second before I started the sentence is now fully imaginal. But to say that that, that it is on that account unreal, non-existent, would be to throw us into a kind of weird solipsism from which we would never even be able to start a conversation. So the past has a kind of imaginal quality, and it's not of the same order as the time that we conceptualize when we look at a clock or when we count moments or when we observe that the Occupy movement failed. Revolutions always fail in chronological time, but the revolution is always already a success in imaginal time because of this element of practice you're talking about. So yeah, I totally agree with you. You say it really nicely in that, in that passage you read. There's this bit that you quoted, once a crystal choir appeared while I was sleeping and called my name. And when they came down near, saying dying is done, then a new song was sung until somewhere we breathed as one. And then there's also an analogous bit that's set to the same music a little bit later, which is very much the same kind of sentiment. Lately sparkling hosts come fill my dreams, descending on fiery beams. I've seen them come clear down where our poor bodies lay, soothe us gently and say, gonna wipe all your tears away. And both of those strophes are set to the contrasting music. So like the basic form of this is like there's two basic bits and we might call one bit the A section. That's the bit where she sings, sun sifting through the gray, enter in, reach me with a ray, silently swooping down just to show me how to give my heart away. So like Those passages are in the key of the song, C major. It starts off in A minor, which is the, I mean, the music theory term for his relative minor, but still basically in the key of of C. That's the A section, right? And then the B section, the contrasting section. All of a sudden, we're in a different key. Sounds like we're in A flat major, but actually what we are is an E flat major. We're in E flat major, a third away from the original key of C. That's a chromatic relationship, and I explained that in the fourth episode of my Ring Cycle podcast, which you can listen to on the Patreon. But I'm not going to explain all that music theory stuff here, except to say that if you want to give somebody a sense of being in a different world, like you're hanging out in this world... the world of that A section. And then you want to give a sense that suddenly we're in a different world. It's like uh, at the beginning of Wizard of Oz, where we go from sepia to color, uh, or some sense of walking into fairy, just some sense of alterity, otherness. You might want to move to a key chromatically related. So in other words, a key that has a bunch of notes that don't belong to the scale of your home key. So we're in C major. 
now we're in E flat, different collection of pitches. And so that sort of sense of like, oh, now we're kind of in this different world, that's pretty appropriate to a kind of a shift in the text, a textual shift, where in the A sections, the C major sections, we are, as it were, over here in this world, the day-to-day world where we're dealing with the sun sifting through the gray, where stars are bursting in the sky and novas are dying and like all these various things that poetically we're evoking as part of the present reality. But in that contrasting section, all of a sudden it's a different reality and it's in that reality, in that different key, in that different sort of textual framework where we have the crystal choirs appear, where we have the sparkling hosts coming down. And in both cases, what we get is a vision of unity, a vision of transcendence, a vision of a kind of perfection and beauty that is not possible over here on this side of that divide. And what really breaks my heart is how we move out of the B section back into the A, Mm -hmm. because we have this kind of glorious vision in a different key. I'm going to sort of hum along. I have a terrible voice, but uh, I'm sure you'll forgive me. So I'm talking about the, um, the bit about the crystal choir, just like once a crystal choir appeared while I was sleeping and called my name. And when they came down near, saying dying is done. So what's happening there is like we are in this new key, V flat major. And in the line, the third line of this B section, when they came down near, we're back on an A flat major chord. And at the moment we say cyan dying is done, we are back in C major. It's like we somehow manage to maintain this beatific vision that appears in a different key which if you like, you could analogize with like a different time, the, mm-hmm. that interval or that pocket of parachronic time within which the miracle can occur. And for a second there, it almost seems like it's here. It's right here in C major. Yeah. And in the last line, we're going to repeat this again, going to a higher note. Until somewhere we breathe this one, go up to the high C. And still I hear their whisper. That's what we sing in this little retransition. It's just an extra two measure that we stick onto the end of that B section. And now... We are right back in it. In the A section, we're over here on this side of the divide. Stars bursting in the sky, hear the sad Nova's cry. And musically, in the way the song is composed, it gives you the sense of this, as I say, a beatific, not just possibility, but a reality. Something happens, something emerges. It's like the clouds break open for a moment. Yeah. This thick beam of light comes down and then 
you can still see the light through the clouds as you return to the sea court and then finally overcast again. Yes, and, exactly. And, back. and she, the song ends in the A minor section, right? The, the song ends on this side of the divide. It does, although it ends on it ends in C major, but nevertheless, because the A minor is like. So that's the that's the chord progression. I just like boiled it down. But yeah, that unstable alteration also between C major and A minor, like if you kept going you could keep going forever looping back to a minor finding our way back to c major looping back to a minor back to c major this sort of endless yin and yang of dark and light uh which very much like our lives you know yeah exactly and also the last verse is the first is a repetition of the first verse so we're back at the starting point at the end of the song so you get this idea of a circle kind of samsaric kind of circular motion and suddenly there's a breaking of the circle a breakthrough a breakthrough but then back in the circle a little bit like the failed revolution which nevertheless touches on the yeah. infinite for a moment yeah but in the day that it happened we had the revolution just for one we day we experienced it just for one day yeah and Correct. that is the and and you know it's like we're on the very edge of talking complete nonsense here some of this is probably going to sound a little bit baffling, but the experience itself is resistant to logical expression. And yet it's a feeling that we all, I am sure, have had. Yeah. It's like a very communicable feeling. It's a very expressible feeling. That feeling of we could be heroes just for one day. Yeah. Like we had this. And in a sense, we still do. Exactly. In that song, that Bowie song, he says, I will be king and you will be queen. And of course, our common understanding is, well, this narrator is saying that one day he will be crowned king and his girlfriend will be crowned queen. But the will be king and the will be queen the potentiality is a property of the present. It's like, it doesn't matter if historically I never get to become the king. In this moment, I am in the state of being about to become king. It's like the the futurity of the kinghood is kind of what he's talking about. So that's why it's like, it doesn't matter if we go down in flames when this plays out. The potential, the the imaginal truth of the moment is that in my saying that I will be king in a way I already am king, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, the once and future king. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and that song, it's great that you brought that up in your chapter because it really does capture this idea of the atemporal dimension of our experience of time. Because I think we're constantly, all of us, bouncing back and forth between these different modalities of time. It's just that one is easy to articulate measure, talk about, schedule with, and one is elusive, subjective, um, uh, um, constantly escaping because it's a vertical time. So it's constantly shooting off into this other world, which is much more difficult to encode societally and to, um, to, it's certainly impossible to measure. Capturing that, reconnecting us to that time, I think is one of the principal functions of art. That's what art does. You could say what we're saying now while remaining completely materialistic. All you have to do is just describe that other time as completely subjective. 
Nevertheless, art has to do with conveying to us this sense of the eternal that we have. Yeah. Whether or not there's any truth to it or any factuality to that, it's another question. It's a secondary question. I really, I love the way that in this song, she uses those kind of key changes to indicate this breaking out into this other time and then this falling yeah. back into this time. It's really beautifully done. You know, Theodor Adorno made a similar kind of move that Gustav Mahler, the great Austrian symphonist, made in his symphonies. And Adorno used this concept, the Durchbruch, the breakthrough. Mm. And I forget most of what Adorno said about breakthroughs, except I think for him, it was always... Actually, I don't know, maybe I'm uh, interpreting Adorno in a very self-serving way, but my feeling is that he got something of the same flavor in those analogous moments of Mahler symphony that what we're talking about in Judy Sill's song, where it's the projection of the utopian into the present. And it's not available to us in the sense that I can just step into that utopia. No. It's not a part of our practical affairs. And there's no roadmap that would tell us how we can get there. But utopia exists. Hope exists. Actually, maybe this is linking back to what we said in an earlier uh, music episode we did ages ago when I was talking about um, this dream I had of my father. And I was talking about me talking to my dead father in the dream that I had good news. But all I could say was that there's good news that there is good news. And you were talking about the idea of your friend who was in the grips of terrible mental illness and was able to kind of pull himself out rung by rung with the thought that even if he didn't feel hope, he could hope that somewhere hope exists. Yeah. And he I knew that hope exists. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hope for hope. Yeah. And I get the feeling that that's kind of... I don't know. There's probably an Adorno scholar who's going to write in angrily to tell me I've got him exactly wrong. But, you know, when Adorno defined art as a promesse de bonheur, you know, a promise of happiness, I kind of think that's what he was after. And those moments of breakthrough in Mahler for him are those promises of happiness, of once and future happiness, yeah. something that's radically impossible in the world as it is presently constituted, but something that art can make real. Yeah. Well, among those Marxist or post-Marxist thinkers who don't want to go down the all art is superstructure route, right? Uh, that all art simply exists to maintain a certain set of economic relations. That usually is what they end up saying. Like Terry Eagleton says something very similar, that art shows us the possible and in showing us the possible releases us from the trap of the actual which itself is determined by socioeconomic relations and all kinds of tricks that keep things in a particular arrangement that benefits certain people and not others. Art is the light through the cloud, the way that we access an elsewhere that without art, we would simply not know exists, you know? And this song is a particularly beautiful way of enacting that transcendent quality of the moment of of beauty or truth or goodness, you know, of art. So I'm interested in the fact that the oneness that she talks about, right? For that mm -hmm. moment, you know, uh, then a new song was sung until somewhere we breathed as one. Of course, this is the essence of what a choir does. A choir sings as one, right? And yet a choir is innately, necessarily a multiplicity. 
So yeah. the the image I get from the two choruses is the, the image of an an, of the angelic host, right? Of right, a, right. A, a, a teeming mass of beings of light. I mean, I read that she uses a lot of um, Christian imagery. Of course, in her songs, Jesus was a crossmaker is a song that obviously yeah. makes references to Jesus. And yet the choice of image here is not an encounter with a singular being, but encounter with others. This is why I think you're right to speak of utopia, because what she accesses in that moment where it shifts into E flat is not a single being or a single nothingness or emptiness outside. It's the whole damn town out there yeah. welcoming her there. It's, it's an idea of another place, another time in which one might live with others, but all of it unfolds outside of the Black Iron Prison, to quote Philip K. Dick, of chronological time. I need to tell you about how I discovered this album briefly. So the song Jesus, etc. by Wilco comes from an album called the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which was released at the end of 2001 or in the second half of 2001. Anyways, in September, I'll get to that in a moment. I didn't know about Wilco or this album until 2007 when uh, a friend of mine had told me about it, about this album specifically. And then I, ended up listening to it and loving it. And I also saw a documentary that was made about the making of the album called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, which also happens to be the title of the first song on the album. Mm. I saw this documentary either in the same week or certainly in the same month as another documentary called Iraq and Fragments. And Iraq and Fragments was a documentary by John Longley, who went to Iraq and shot this documentary, and he called it Iraq in Fragments for two reasons. First of all, in terms of content, the documentary really shows us a country in fragments. This is Iraq three years into the Iraq war. It's Iraq in pieces, essentially. And he uh, has three parts to his documentary, one about the Sunni Iraqis, one about the Shiites, and then one about the Kurds. It's a a beautiful and harrowing documentary about the effects of war on a society. And so content-wise, Iraq is in fragments in the documentary, but also the documentary itself has a kind of fragmentary structure to it. It feels like a lot of pieces of things. It's, it's stitched together in, deliberately stitched together in a, a uh, in a strange kind of like sometimes dissonant way. And that's part of the filmmaker's attempt, I think, to convey to us the fragmentary nature of life in Iraq after the American invasion. Now, interestingly, the documentary on Wilco's 
album, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, is also rather fragmentary in the same way. You're getting snippets. Uh, it doesn't have the the feeling of of completeness that certain other documentaries have. It really is kind of you're like a fly on the wall watching moments unfold, very little commentary, very little effort to stitch it all together to form a coherent story. But also the album that they're making, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, has a fragmentary structure. It's an amazing piece of work. It's essentially about signal to noise ratio. So the title Yankee Hotel Foxtrot comes from a number station recording because they use a lot of number station recordings in the in the mix of the album. Do you know about number stations? I do a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So essentially they're but, like, but we should probably explain it, yeah. Yeah. Shortwave radio channels where at specific times people used to like seek these out and then record them and you can buy anthologies of these things. Uh, a voice would come on and start to list off numbers. And the assumption has always been that these were essentially code intended for spies. And they come from all over the world, very mysterious number stations. And in this album, which uses a lot of noise and a lot of radio staticky sounds and that sort of thing throughout, a lot of the songs seem to emerge from beds of noise and then dissolve back into those. They use these number stations to inject a note of enigmatic almost ominous significance. So there's a fragmentary nature there too. And listening to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, you get the sense of these signals suddenly just emerging out of this ambient noise. And I think that that's kind of important. That's kind of an important part of the thematics of the album, but also it ends up being super relevant when you think of the historical specificity of its release and what happened then. Because the album was supposed to be released on September 11th, 2001. That didn't happen for two reasons. One is the 9-11 attacks. Another one is that Warner Brothers decided to drop Wilco because they were so disappointed with this recording. They thought it was too avant-garde, too weird, and they got dropped by their label around the same time. Now, the order of things eludes me, but the point is that this album was supposed to be released on 9-11 The cover art is a photo by Sam Jones, who made the documentary of two towers called the Marina City Towers in in Chicago. These are two brutalist apartment buildings side by side. And it's just just the uncanny coincidence of an album with that cover coming out on that day is already weird. But then you get to the lyrics and the lyrics are filled with what in retrospect seemed like necessarily intended allusions to 9-11. We'll get to that when we talk about the song. Throughout the album, you have these images, which at the time Tweedy wrote the lyrics, and he used a lot of stream of consciousness and automatic writing techniques when he was writing these songs. He didn't give much thought to the meaning. He was picking up these poetic images that he was putting into the songs, which by the time the album would come out, you know, impossible for him to know at the time, would suddenly gain all this significance. So this album, more than most, shows us a prophetic dimension of art, which I think is, you can say it's all coincidence, but that's just something you're saying at that point. Uh, (laughs) The album is just filled with allusions to 9-11 and to post-9-11 life and to America after 9-11. So that's the reason I wanted to bring it up. So again, it has to do Hmm. with time. It has to do with accessing that atemporal. Yeah dimension of time right oh that's awesome so when you are talking about this as an album that has a kind of fragmentary quality is that especially through the lyrics do you think certainly through the lyrics but also through the mix uh through how the songs are arranged 
I mean, we just start in kind of a cacophony. The album begins yeah. with all kinds of like little snippets of sound, like echoing. It's almost like you're picking up all these radio stations all at once and you're hearing it all at the same time. And mm. then slowly a kind of chord progression emerges from that. And that, mm. they just keep that going through the album. So the fragmentary nature, the songs feel like fragments, fragments of coherent signal in a sea of noise. Mm. Right? Because, mm. man, that just is making me feel like, uh, well, that's what divination is in yeah. a sense. Like totally. you think about the classic chaos magician update of the scrying stone which is a, a tv turned to static yeah and whether you're using a scrying stone or a tarot deck you're introducing a random element and you're creating an unmeaning collage of fragments but in that unmeaning collage of fragments you are also setting up an informationally dense or like a you're you're setting up an environment in which messages can appear almost like the glass box in Twin Peaks season three. Um, <laughs> poor Tracy says, do things appear sometimes? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're setting up an informationally dense field where it's not information in the sense of like useful information, meaningful utterances, just lots of stuff, bits and pieces cut out from maybe other more coherent utterances. But by creating this sort of randomized field, we can kind of detune our mind. Like if you're a coyote watching a TV tuned to static, you know, you can kind of let your mind go a little bit. You can kind of relax your hold on meanings and propositional utterances and just let forms begin to suggest themselves to you. Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm seeing here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So interesting that this has a beginning in number stations. I do, I've never made a study of this. I've never looked into them. I've only just heard about them, but they have an interesting phenomenon. I was thinking about this with regards to the UFO phenomenon, which I'm writing a piece about for presenting later this summer. But I was thinking about how with UFOs, certainly, but also with number stations and paranormal things generally, give you a front side of the phenomenon, right? The realm of appearances. Right. But what you don't get, what is withheld is the backside of the phenomenon. So like, you know, when I saw a woodsman coming out of a little copse in Wisconsin, I remember us talking about it. And, you know, what I wanted to know is like, who is that guy? What's his life like? Did he go and buy a burrito after this? Did he, you know, did he, did he go to the bathroom? Did he get in his car and drive somewhere else? Is there a behind the appearance to that guy might be but it's forever cut off for me and this is true of any number of magical or just or paranormal or just bizarre things in this world ufos are a great example of it but it occurred to me number stations it's the same thing you can hear the numbers and yeah. you know there's some reality some meaning to the numbers but that will forever be cut off from you and so it's the front side of an enigma and I actually found myself somewhat baffled by this music and maybe to some extent because of that, because, you know, this is not Stockhausen. This is not like some kind of weird avant-garde music gives you nothing to hold on to. The song that we listen to for today, Jesus, etc., is, uh, I don't know, it sounds like, like some sort of Bob Dylan inflected alt country folk-ish. Yeah. You've got, you know... 
country fiddles and sounds like 70s soft rock like it has this yeah kind of, it has this like, almost Fleetwood Mac beat to it yeah Jesus don't cry you can rely on me honey you can combine anything you want I'll be around you ride about the stars each one is a setting song and even though the song is not doing anything all that avant-garde there's still a way in which it gives me that mona lisa smile the mona lisa smile is another figure of that inscrutability of that just showing you the the appearance and not showing you the backside to the appearance yeah, yeah. this song in ways that I don't even know if I can put in words why I'm saying this. It gives you the Mona Lisa smile. Yeah. A lot of the songs on the album do this because they're so enigmatic and yet so familiar at the same time, right? The songs are fairly standard in terms of, you know, they're obviously alt-country songs of the early 21st century. They really belong to a time. They have a kind of uh, retrospective quality. They're drawing on a lot of songs from the past. But it's the context, it's the way the songs are mixed and the way they're recorded, the way the drums are recorded, the way that the presence of the strings, for example, in that particular song, the presence of the strings in the mix, they're way up front, like in a way that's almost, that wouldn't have passed muster, I think, in the 90s, that type of mix. So it's doing things differently from an engineering perspective, but it's also... I do see Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as a kind of concept album. And for me, Jesus, etc. is simply a synecdoche of the of the whole thing. But if you want to look at like Mona Lisa Smile, I mean, you know, keeping in mind that this album was written before the attacks of 9-11, you can imagine someone, because they released the album on their website for free on September 18th. I think they were among the first bands to do this in the kind of post-Napster era or the Napster era at the time. So they, you know, released the album for free exactly one week after the attacks. So people are still in shock, right? This is very, very fresh. And they're listening to a tune, and this is what they hear. Tall buildings shake, voices escape, singing sad, sad songs. Tune to chords strung down your cheeks, bitter melodies turning your orbit around. Tall buildings shake, voices escape, singing sad, sad songs. Tune to chords strung down your cheeks, bitter melodies turning your orbit around. The idea of turning your orbit around, of the world changing. Suddenly the Earth's orbit has changed. Voices whine. Skyscrapers are scraping together. Your voices smoking last cigarettes are all you can get, turning your orbit around. It would have been difficult at that time not to think that Wilco had run into the studio and recorded this, you know, in the previous week in order to comment on the events unfolding. I mean, the idea of voices, escaped voices, first of all, that plays to the kind of radio theme of the album where it's just like these disembodied voices everywhere. But specifically, that's what we were getting. We were getting phone messages from people, um, you know, news broadcasts done in a state of panic, uh, just voices flying everywhere. People calling from their cell phones from the top of the towers. Um, Yeah. and, And then skyscrapers scraping together, which is kind of a beautiful way of describing the two towers coming down uh, yeah and people couldn't believe it when <laughs> it turned out that that song had been in the can for six months you know or something it just seemed uncanny and that's just one example just look at the titles here 
there's a song called War on War, which is the war on terror, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a song called um, Ashes of American Flags. There's a song called Pot Kettle Black, you know, the idea of like the U.S.'s foreign policy having been partially one of the causal factors leading to the attacks. A song called Poor Places, which is about third world countries, the Middle East. And, and it, it's crazy. And yet none of these songs on its own makes any real sense. It's very poetic. It's very abstract. But in light of the event that happened on the day the album was supposed to come out on, it makes perfect sense without losing any of the enigmatic allure of great art. So it's just an uncanny coincidence, if you want to call it that, that made this album. And now the album is forever connected to 9-11. On the day of the attacks, somebody brought up to Jeff Tweedy the, the issue of the cover. It's like, well, we have two towers on the cover. We have to choose another image. People will think we're referencing the attacks. And he's like, fuck no, we're not changing it. We picked that picture before. It's staying on. And thank God, because, you know, he's not a prophet, so he's always denied any connection to 9-11, but he himself has remarked that some of the synchronicities are a little bit uncanny. Um, and he was wanted to honor that. I mean, it's hard not to imagine that an event that is inhabiting its own hoy, its own dharma position, yeah, its own phenomenal expression, that's true of every event. But you have to imagine there must be some events that are so big, they're so supercharged with emotion, so supercharged with meaning, and, and in the case of 9-11, suffering and pain and death, that they have a kind of um, powerful glow. They, it's like a, a radio transmitter that is broadcasting with a tremendously powerful signal, such that it can even sort of warp the time around it, that it mm -hmm. becomes almost like a sinkhole, like those... Um, you know, those illustrations that you see in science class of relativity with a bowling ball in a sheet, you know, the idea of like some massive, something massive, like a black hole causing this kind of bend in space time. I imagine that, but something more to do with meaning, with significance, but similarly sitting like a bowling ball in a taut bed sheet, warping the surface of it and pulling everything into it. Yeah. Warping the orbit. Turning your orbit around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so imagine a bedsheet pulled taut with a bowling ball sitting in the middle of it, and you've got a little ball bearing that you want to flick across the sheet to go to the other side of the sheet. But of course, it's going to be pulled by the warp yeah. caused by that bowling ball, and it'll orbit it, you know, like the, the those little things they have it hands-on science museums for kids where you can put the quarter in and it goes around and around the well. It creates a kind of a gravity well of meaning. So obviously we're still in some sense stuck in 9-11, like here we are more than 20 years later and uh, we still feel yeah. the effects of it. Like every time you go through airport security and you have to take your shoes off. That's an uh, perhaps trivial example, but you know, it's kind of obvious, right? But the idea of like... No, it doesn't just work forwards in time, like the past informing the present, but also can work backwards in time. It just seems obvious to me something of the sort was going on oh, yeah. with uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Exactly. The pull's on both sides of the moment, right? Yeah. I want to just talk a little bit about the day for me. Maybe you can... Have we ever done this? Talked about 9-11 no. in our lives? No, yeah. never have. Because uh, I was living in Toronto at the time and I saw this on the TV. My brother called me, I think. 
and told me, just turn on your TV. And I turned it on and I saw the second building fall. And of course, I knew in that moment, I knew that everything had changed, like everything had changed. And it did. It did change. There was this kind of like uh, threshold moment there that was crossed. Later that day, I went to a friend, my friend that I mentioned earlier, um, the Hope Against Hope friend. And uh, I walked to his house. He lived at some distance. He was down at St. Clair area. So it was like a 25-minute walk. And I'm walking down and there's nothing in the sky, no planes, nothing. There's this weird quiet. And I remember thinking the sky wasn't the same sky, right? Um, like yeah. everything had changed. Like, And so when I hear that line, turning your orbit around, last cigarettes are all you can get, meaning the taking for granted of time, of continuity has ceased. Every cigarette you have now feels like your last because mm. you've been thrown into this unpredictable space. And it just seems to me like ever since, it's been one unpredictable thing after another that uh, history took on a kind of like Monty Python-esque quality, for lack of a better adjective, after that. And it hasn't let up. It's just been a weird clown show ever since in all kinds of weird ways. I remember feeling that day that something fundamental had changed. And so it doesn't surprise me that this album might have tapped into that. It just feels like something, but somebody had to. It's a brutal world that we ended up in on the other side of 9-11. And when I say brutal, I don't just mean brutal as in brutal violence, but also brutalist as in brute facts. Yeah. Um, Did you want to talk about the musical structure of the song? Not or? really, because actually, you know, the musical structure, in a way, it just feels like it is in sublime indifference to whatever is going on in the lyrics. Yeah. Like in the Judy Sill song, in The Kiss, there is a lot of musical poetic action, like music working with the poetry to give us the sense of like, if only, oh shit, you know, <laughs> this, this, the sense of like a glimmering, beautiful, once and future hope that is nevertheless not here and now. And the music does that beautifully. But that kind of music expressing the words and vice versa doesn't really seem to be going on No, in this song. The song feels, I don't want to say stock, because it doesn't sound stock, but the song, it sounds like the music was written. Oh, we have this song. We have this like mid-tempo soft rock tune. Yeah, uh, I'm going to put some lyrics on there. And then you hang yeah. the most counterintuitive lyrics on it. It's like, yeah. it's like the last, those are not the lyrics you would expect to go with that melody and that chord progression. And I think that that's where it, the musical genius of the song resides. It's in the fact that the lyrics stand in a kind of thematic or um, narrative counterpoint to the music, that they yeah. feel all the weirder, all the more like a Mona Lisa smile for they're not really fitting this song at all. There's exactly. nothing about those lyrics that would warrant this melody. It just feels weird. It feels like a pop song written by an alien. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. There's also the line in the bridge, our love is all we have. Our love is all of God's money. One of my favorite lines in any pop song, our love is all of God's That's money. That's a terrific line. It refers exactly to what we were talking about, these two orders of time. Chronological time, the time of money, the time of dollars, the time in which you say time is money. <laughs> yeah. Um, the money that was traded at the world, uh, what's it was called? The World Trade Center. That money has nothing to do with love. Love has to do with that parachronic time, with that other time. Yeah. And 
our love is the money of the divine. And I think that that little line, our love is all of God's money, connects Jesus, et cetera, to the kiss in an interesting way, because it's referring to another order of being, which functions through a radically different logic of meaning and truth, completely different from the historical time in which terrorists blow up buildings or crash planes into them. It's a time that is outside of time. It's that time that it's the time of E flat. <laughs> Man, I, I feel that. I feel that. You know, during COVID, like everyone else, I was struggling a bit. And what I had a very strong feeling of was our love is all we have. And I remember saying this to Helen and my kids, and we were all together in my small house, you know, during lockdown, uh, all on top of each other, house full of musicians, and everybody's like, t Helen's teaching in the bedroom, uh, teaching online cello lessons. Alice is practicing in her room. Nicholas is playing Steely Dan in his room. I'm, <laughs> you know, it's like, and yet for all of the, I mean, that was like this sonic inscription of four people living on top of each other in lockdown. The cacophony was the inscription of COVID. And yet for me, it was like the sound of love, just each of us doing our things and, and making this cacophony together. But that was the sound of love. And I remember saying to Helen, I feel like I can get through anything so long as we get through it together. And I remember sometime in there finding a picture that Helen had taken as part of a professional photo shoot. She needed a headshot for professional purposes. And this was like a year or two before she met me. And so this was when she was very young and she looks very different now. And yet I found this photo of her, a photo she didn't use for professional purposes because the photographer caught her in a smile. And my wife has the most beautiful smile. And there's a sort of like a certain smile she has, which is a little goofy, not goofy, that's the wrong word, but not serious. A smile that issues from her quirky heart. And I just love that photo so much. I have it framed and keep it in my study. And I kept it nearby in COVID because it was like capturing this little shard of her being, of who she is. And she was like that before I ever knew her. And that smile that that photograph captures, captures something eternal and perfect in her. And that was like my pole star, you know, that was the thing that got me through COVID, that love. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>